Welcome to this session, which is celebrating the publication of a truly beautiful New Zealand book, Landmarks. Um, it's come out from Godwood Press, and it's a really lovely piece of publishing. It's a collaborative work between three of New Zealand's greatest artistic practitioners, Graham Sidney, Brian Turner, and Owen Marshall. And it celebrates the distinctive region of inland Otago, a region that the three addressed in another publication 25 years ago, the immensely popular Landmarks, which appeared in 1995. So this is a revisiting of that uh, book. Timeless Land. The Timeless Land. Oh, I'm sorry. That's my typo. Timeless Land. Good. Ah, we're only five minutes in and I've already got it wrong. <laughs> now, none of these authors really require any introduction to a New Zealand audience. I'm sure you are all very familiar with them and with their work. But briefly, I'll summarise uh, their bios. Graham Sidney. He's lived in Otago for all but three of his 70-plus years. For 46 years, he's painted the landscapes of the south, and in particular, the region of central Otago overlooking the Cambrian Valley, the Hawkton Range, and Mount St. Bathans, where he lives and works as a painter, printmaker, photographer, and writer. His work is instantly recognisable and deeply familiar, and it's held in public collections, including Te Papa, and in private collections here and around the world. And in 2004, he received the Order of New Zealand Merit for services to painting. Graham Sidney. Next to Graham, we have Brian Turner. He's also a southern man. He's born in Dunedin, and since 1999, he's been a resident in the Maniatoto, where the little village of Aturahua is rapidly becoming something of a literary capital in this country. He's published eight collections of poetry, as well as journalism, television scripts, essays, a memoir, and books on fishing and cricket. He's from a noted sporting family, has played hockey for New Zealand, he's been a cyclist and a mountaineer, and the outdoors remains central to his life. He's received numerous awards, including the Commonwealth Poetry Prize in 1979, the New Zealand Poet Laureateship in 2003, the Prime Minister's Award for Poetry in 2009, and this year, 2020, the ONZM for Services to Literature in the Queen's Birthday Honours. Brian Turner. And finally, in this triumvirate, these three musketeers, um, we have Owen Marshall. He's travelled extensively, but has returned always to southern New Zealand, where he's lived most of his life, particularly in South Canterbury. He's had a notable career, writing or editing over 35 books, and he's received numerous awards, including the Deutz Medal for Fiction at the New Zealand Book Awards in 2000 for his novel Harlequin Rex. He's held residencies at Canterbury, Otago and Massey, and the Catherine Mansfield Fellowship in Monton. His career has been recognised with the Prime Minister's Award for Fiction in 2013. In 2000, he received the ONZM for services to literature, and in 2012, 
he was appointed a companion of that order. He's also an honorary doctor of literature from Canterbury University. Owen Marshall. And I need hardly add that all of them are deeply loved. <laughs> this afternoon, we're going to hear from each of the three contributors to this book. There'll be conversation, and also you'll hear brief extracts or comment from each contributor. Because time will be probably rather limited, there'll possibly not be time for questions during the session, but each contributor has said they will enjoy talking with members of the audience after the session when the book will be available for purchase at the sales table. So let's begin. Let's hear from these notable people. Um, I'd like to ask Owen if he would mind reading a little bit from Landmarks to celebrate its beginning. It's a pleasure to be here this afternoon and welcome. It's also a pleasure for me to be associated, of course, with my two long-time friends in this enterprise. Uh, but before I um, read, I would just like to pay tribute to some other people who have contributed towards this book. Harriet Allen at Random Penguin uh, is very enthusiastic about the work, and she has produced uh, a book which has very high production values and we're very proud of. It was also Harriet, in fact, who suggested the title of the book when the rest of us were dithering and didn't know what to call it. I would also like to acknowledge the financial support that we received from Creative New Zealand. These things are often overlooked. And Fiona. Fiona is not only our chair today, but she contributed a wonderfully insightful and generous introduction to the book, which I'm sure you'll enjoy. Fiona is just as much a southerner as we are. Brought up in Omaru, Janet Frame country, very familiar with central Otago and living, down, living now in Dunedin. Thank you, Fiona. I'm going to read a very uh, short piece from the fiction. I've written at least two novels set in central Otago. This is a little bit from a novel called Dry Bread. Penny Main King's directions took him into the valley and finally to that isolated gully, a cottage, the original part of which was sod and the addition grey, unpainted wood. It was half hidden from the road by an overgrown macrocarpa hedge, the green defiantly incongruous amid the drought. There was no lawn, no garden, no fence to complete the boundary the great hedge pronounced, no gate even, and unseen sheep had grazed to the small concrete front step and shat in the shade the house made in the everlasting afternoons. A water tank was fed from the roof. The long drop dunny was 20 metres or so from the house and a little higher on the slope. 
A blue hatchback was parked behind the hedge and a red trike lay on its side in the yellow grass. So dry was the dirt that Theo could see cracks like lightning strikes as if the ground had given up the ghost. Theo had arrived at the unglamorous part of central Otago. Far from lakes or ski fields, what could you do here in the gold miner's exhausted gully except shoot rabbits, wander the bare hills, or shut yourself in one of the three coffin batches? And a couple of short poems. One that I never read any further north than Hamilton <laughs> uh, and is in fact dedicated to someone called BT. South Island Prayer. God, don't let me die in Auckland. <laughs> Rotting in the heat before your eyes are closed, a greasy takeaway after the soul is gone. Jesus, no. Let me go with the old southerly buster, river stones in the grey flecked sky and that white wind to keep your chin up. Christ, yes. And the last one called Fall. The dead are dancing in the street a flame in yellow, red and tawny gold, swirling, leaping, pirouetting, flouncing as miniature flamenco divas driven by the wind. Released from former duty as foliage, they have this final dispensation to fraternize. Chestnut, silver birch, dogwood and copper beech leaves, all scattering, or surging ecstatically together. Like salmon saving deepest colours for the end, they press on urgently to complete life cycle. The dead are dancing in the street, aflame in yellow, red and tawny gold. Thank you. When I hear that piece, Owen, it's got such a sense of place, such a strong sense of place and of this southern place. If you had to each define the region that you're writing about, just to begin with, can you tell me where you see the south beginning and ending for you? Great. Not so much the south, Fiona, but um, to get to my place, we drive the, the pig route from Palmerston in towards Ranfurly, and I know it by heart, of course, after so many years. But I think for me, the, the transition point is probably what we call the brothers, mm -hmm. which is a, a wonderful dip in the road and two um, sort of flat-topped camel humps um, on the right-hand side which I've always loved on the right-hand side when I'm going inland. Mm. Uh, I've always loved because it, they both figure in a fantastic early photograph of a, of a team of oxen hauling in um, through the mud one winter, trying to get up the slope. 
hauling in some, some wood and things into Central because there was never any wood in Central. Mm -hmm. It was treeless. And the Brothers is, um, is very symbolic for me. So that's a, an old name that, uh, that goes back to... Uh, I don't know where the yeah. name came from, yes. but um, that's what we all call it. Yes. Yeah. I love the way in country, throughout New Zealand, local people know mm. a name or give a name to some unremarkable corner or a hill and people don't necessarily know from outside that region that name, but you do. And so it's yeah. the brothers for you. Mm. What about you, Brian? Do you, how would you define your region of the South? Um, not nearly remote enough from the rest of New Zealand. <laughs> um, uh, yes, I recall one day when I was living in Wellington, many, many years ago, I was in my 20s, I was working for the New Zealand branch of OUP, Oxford University Press, and I began to go down to Island Bay and look across at the Kaikoura range and the snow, and I went home to my then wife, and said, we're going home. Oh. And she said, I'm not. <laughs> I said, well, I am. And I went, and there, there are all sorts of things evolved after that. <laughs> of course. Um, but, you know, I often think, too, that a federal system would suit the likes of me, because now the population of New Zealand is so distorted in terms of where people live that most of the voting power comes from up north, north mm. of the Waitaki. So mm. could we put a, you know, a, a toll gate down there? And, you know, a federal system wouldn't be too bad, I think. <laughs> so uh, if you become president yeah. of but, uh, yeah, In some countries of the world, for saying these sorts of things, I'd be chucked in jail, wouldn't I? <laughs> yeah, you know. And I've got a lot of friends who live in various parts all over New Zealand. Um, one of the luckiest things, I think, in my life is that... Um, I've met and liked a lot of people, and I've had friendships which have lasted decades. And, but for you, the barrier, it sounds, is south of the Waitaki. Yeah, well, I love I loved the southern land. Yes, right. Um, okay. Phil Temple and I climbed lots of mountains together, and when I worked for Customs in Christchurch, I used to go with Bernie Hack, and we'd climb in the Arthur's Pass, mm. and Phil Temple and I climbed Mount Cook and other mountains, and... Mm. Okay. I'm, I'm a creature of the outdoors, big time. I'm keen Good. fly fisherman and so on and so on. And I'm thinking of making a comeback into road cycling. Excellent. <laughs> well, yeah, they say a skinny whippet like bugger like me is pretty good at getting up and down hills with five walls. <laughs> okay, well, watch out for you on those yeah, central right, yeah, attacks. Owen, what about you? Where would you put? I your... don't pretend to have the intimate knowledge of central that. Graham and Brian have. I don't live there, uh, but I do go there often, and I was fortunate enough <clears throat> in, I think, 2013 um, to have the residency at the wonderful Henderson House in, in Alex, and my wife Jackie and I really enjoyed our time there, and we visit often. But the region for me is not just the landscape, because it seems to me that um, a region is composed of its past as well as its present. Mm -hmm. And my background, academic background, is, is in history. I love that distinctive and, and, and special history that Central Otago has. 
I love going to the little gold mining places mm. like Ophir and, and Lawrence and St. Bathans. Mm. And so much of it is unchanged. Mm. And so I do enjoy the, the freedom and, uh, and the distinctive landscape. I also enjoy that very severe, in a way, history that it possesses there. Mm. But for me, the south is slightly wider. It includes North Otago, where you and I lived for yes. years. Uh, and so on. So it's a slightly, perhaps, wider south that I And it that edges I over into South Canterbury yeah, yeah. as well. Okay. Um, so can you tell us about your arrival in this place? Because I think, Brian, you're the only one who was... You were born in Dunedin. Yes. Yes. <coughs> Graham, you were also... But you, you went away and then came back. So can you tell, tell us about your earliest memories of the place and then the return in adulthood. You've mentioned it a bit. You've touched on it, Brian, with your, your uh, wife, <laughs> your ex-wife, I presume. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, could you talk about your first memories of the place and let's move from there. First memories for me were mum and dad um, taking me into Queenstown when I was about eight. Um, and Subsequently, going in from the coast, we were, we were Dunedin, a Dunedin family with a, a holiday house at Karatani, which was really just up the coast another 30 miles in the same weather, um, <laughs> which made summer holidays a constant disappointment. <laughs> we, would, we would arrive back home in, after the summer holidays still the same pasty <laughs> grey people that we had been when we left and friends in the neighbourhood would come back from, from their new little cribs in central Otago golden brown as if, as if they'd come from another country and the envy that that inspired in me um, resulted in me putting pressure on mum and dad really to, to follow the neighbourhood families and, and go to Arrowtown so when I was about 12 or 11 or something like that, early 60s, um, we bought a, Dad bought a quarter acre in Arrowtown for 300 pounds. <laughs> and it was, oh, on the, dear. it was because of that, you know, that was the era when people built cribs, not mansions, to go to. <laughs> and we still have that crib, which I, I ought to tell you because it's quite a nice little... A sort of anecdote that sums it all up. Um, the family still own the crib that Dad built in 1962. To our shame, it's one of the last remaining ramshackle, simple little summer things. And we get rates bills that say land value 800,000, improvements 12,000. <laughs> <laughs> Which I find I'm very proud of. Really. I would be too. <laughs> but going in and out, going... Every holiday, school holidays, you know, I had a stay-at-home mum. Um, I was the youngest of three, so we were constantly, every, every opportunity, weekends even, we would drive from Dunedin into Central, and that meant going through um, this extraordinary landscape that was so unlike, um, so unlike the coast, and I, I fell in love with it very, very early, and that's never changed. And so when you came back as an adult, was there, a, there was a gap, substantial gap, so what... what drew you as an adult to go to Central? 
Well, I came back from Europe um, in 1974, having gone to, to England to, be, to become a famous international super wealthy painter, <laughs> and failed, totally, and plunged into a, into a wonderful depression. Mm. And while over there, this is not a bullshit story, I was visited in my dreams, of my gloomy dreams and sort of horrible bedsitters in, in London. Um, I had extremely vivid dreams of Central Otago. Ah. And when I came back in the middle of 1974 with the promise from my parents to, to, to support me for a year to see what would happen if I, if I gave this full-time painting a go, um, I, I literally wanted to come back to try and give those dreams a form. Mm. So my brother loaned me a car and I rented a house in Naseby for three months from a friend at $5 a week and went to Naseby in the middle of London, in the middle of winter and immediately got depressed again because I was on my own. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I thought that's what painters had to do. <laughs> so I was back in Central anyway and, and right from the beginning it was revisiting those dreams. Yes, and it began to feel better, I hope. That oh, yeah. Really yeah. yeah. Right. Um, Brian, what about your um, first memories of... Central Otago. You have written about the tussock country, about um, the waving tussock, which has mostly been cleared now, but it's such a feature of going up from Dunedin into Central Otago, those beautiful moving hills, which are now all pasture. But can you tell us about your first memories of Central Otago? Well, from an early age, I was very keen on landscapes and skyscapes. And the um, formations of the clouds cumulonimbus and so on. Mm. Just um, like big chunks of, of cauliflower, I suppose, mm. to some extent, were there. Uh, the wide open spaces, I felt a bit like a cowboy in, in, in America. I fantasised about that. Was, fantasies have taken up a large proportion of my life, I think. <laughs> um, and did you holiday yeah. there as a child as well? Because you were a Dunedin family, weren't you? Yes. So did you holiday there mm, as a but child? I, I became a mad trout fisherman ah. in the least stream in Dunedin. It was full of fish in those days. And snag, mullet um, used to pour up from the upper harbour and into the mouth of the least, and you could snag them with this and that. Uh, I got very keen on trout fishing and I got uh, parents to take us away for we go down to the Pomahaka or up in the gorges on the Tari and so on and so on and um, it was just a magical come mystical come marvellous mm -hmm. place inland mm -hmm. and to my uh, irritation to say the very very least um, <laughs> we been hard at it converting the natural central Otago into something which is well green, green, green with pivot irrigators everywhere and so on and less water in the rivers and streams yes. and in some of them the contamination through nitrates and phosphates yes. and the slime. You see very few insects hatching or now, like compared to what was the past, and so on. Yes, I, I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't make me sit around at night and want to chuck rocks at all sorts of things to think of. Um, but I do wish that we hadn't got rid of so much of the tussock grassland yeah. and all of that. 
As a boy in uh, growing up in Timaru, I can certainly remember that uh, my father used to pack up a rather shabby little green trailer and put it on the back of the Humber, and we'd all squash in, and off we'd go to How Central. How many of you? Glendu Bay, I think. Was How there. many children? You were quite a big uh, family. Well, there were nine children altogether, but they, <laughs> they weren't all in the car at the same time, I think so. Um, <laughs> Some of them had sort of moved on, but there would be strapped to the roof. There'd be probably five at any at yes. any one time. So yes. off we'd trundle uh, into Central. So we tended to go to Glen Dubay. I imagine because it was cheap there. I can't remember, yes. but I suppose that. And of course, since then, I've also um, travelled in, uh, travelled often, and, and enjoyed the time there. Yes. Um, it, it, uh, I must say, it was generally in the summer, mm. uh, having experienced the Central winter. <laughs> Uh, it's something that uh, you don't want to be caught in too often. Mm. But uh, it is a lovely area, and, and you can get away. And I think both uh, Brian and Graham have suggested the sense of space and the, the sense of being privileged within that rather than being part of a mass of people mm. moving through a tourist area. And for me, it's not Wanaka and Queenstown that are my central. It's it's the Maniatoto and the, the quieter areas and St. Bathans and places, places well, like that. You're certainly not going to get away from people and Wanaka yeah, and Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a getaway sort of place for me. Yes. Life's busy enough generally. Yes. And I agree with Brian when he talks about some of the unfortunate things, the despoiling things that have happened, but there are also positive things that have happened over the last 25 years since Timeless Land. The, for example, the success of the um, cycling trail for the, yes. the central road trail has been wonderful for small areas. Yes. The, the growth of viticulture, I think that suits central, some wonderful vineyards there. Yes. And also there's a, a, a growth of artistic and cultural communities now in central, which, which are, I think, wonderful. A lot of, a lot of, of very talented people live there and they, and they yes. do their cultural things. So... There's a balance. There are the things that we are sorry to see that have happened over the last 25 years, but there are also uh, good things happening in Central, and I think it's still a great place to go. Right. Well, in a minute, it might be good to talk about the book precisely and how you created the book. But, Brian, would you like to read a couple of poems? We'll just have a little uh, break and yeah, hear two, of the poems, <clears throat> two poems from the collection. Um, there's, quite a, there's quite a lot of... Sorry. Can I... You can stay there if you like. Yes. No, I'll sit here and just read right. the, the couple of shorties. Um, quite a lot of these poems are in landmarks, but not all by far. Yes. Um, and um, let me see. Foretold for Vincent and Helen, close friends of mine. There's a warm breeze blowing down off the mountains now that most of the snow has gone. There's a song somewhere in the heart of every man and woman with the heart to sing. There's elation born of relief and the return of hope and grace and the flight of a big hawk over rough ridge. There's beauty in the unruffled olive green and grey feathers of the silver eyes, feeding on sugar on my schist stone wall. There's rivers and streams that are quieter again 
and sheep and cattle whose stoicism never falters is the feeling exiles over and that for all its limitations what's foretold has barely begun. I'll see if I can find my glasses. I think I <laughs> had difficulty getting at that. Um, hmm. Gillian, help me. <laughs> Thank you. There's no one better than Gillian for me. Yeah. <laughs> Every poet needs a Gillian. <laughs> Thank you. Blackbird. When a blackbird starts singing high in the silver birch and darks hovering, heartfelt beats heartless hands down. And it seems to those who hope to discern the difference between love and loveliness that the bird's song may be as pure as any will ever hear and is part longing, part fulfilment, near unadulterated joy. And though one can't say that a bird wonders if remorse will ever run its course, that blackbird sings in ways that assuage need in a voice that's his alone until, miraculously, it feels as if I'm singing too, him to me and me to him and both of us for all of us. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Thanks, Gillian. <laughs> Two cups of coffee now. <laughs> um, so you've taken this region that you've known for a very long time now, each of you, and you've created this book, this wonderful book. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk, though, about the first book, the one that you created 25 years ago, and how that originated and whether this book had a different kind of genesis or a different start. So let's just start with the original book, Timeless Land. Now, how did that start? How did that come about? You've all been mates for quite a long time. Um, I don't know how you all met one another, but was it a conversation in a pub? Was it a general idea? How did it start? Well, I suppose we may well have different stories, but my, my, my <laughs> recollection is that it really came from Barbara Larson, who at that stage was associated with John McIndoe, and I can remember Barbara uh, talking about this idea of the three of us. And I must admit, at the time, I thought, well, is that going to work? You're mixing sort of oil and water, you've got prose, poetry, images, but I think, um, I think she was right, and, and it did work, and I think it despite the, the different um, mediums, I think it worked partly because of our affection for, for that area, but also because of the commonality we had as friends. So I think those two things enabled the elements to fuse, and uh, it was, I thought it was a, a great book. Right, so Barbara put the three of you together as the co-authors of the book, the co-creators of the book. Mm. Yeah. How do you remember it starting, Graham? Do you remember um, the same story? Yeah. <laughs> Not really. Uh, <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Creative difference. Yes. Well, I've, I felt like the baby, really, and um, I still do in this company. I'm, I've always been thrilled to be associated with 
with both of these blokes. Um, for me, from the outset, it, it, I, used, I can remember quite clearly hoping one day I would get something of mine on the cover of a book. And Brian was editing at, jo at John McIndoe's, and he asked if, if he could put something of mine on the cover of a book by Owen Marshall. And that was the first time I had heard about Owen. And I was thrilled to bits that, I, that something of mine might go on the cover of a book, a dream come true. And from that point on, which was probably early 80s, was it? Oh, I can't remember. Yes. Um, from that point on, I was just happy to be associated with them. So, in any form. So, if, if, I can't remember approaches from Barbara. In fact, to be honest, I sort of thought that the idea was mine, but maybe that's... <laughs> <laughs> That's the sort of vanity you, you cling to. Um, Not everything works out. No. no. No, but I was very, I was just happy to be there. So if the, if the idea came from Barbara, I would have been in like a big black dog. All right, okay. John McIntyre, who was a marvellous man and one of the great patrons of the arts in the South, music, painters, writers and so on, McIntyre did uh, contributed an enormous amount to the um, publication of all sorts of work um, in the South um, when I was lucky enough to be working there. John, I'd been working, uh, I, uh, lucky enough to get a job there. John, I, John found me, I was in Dunedin and I'd come from up north and he'd met me when I was working for the New Zealand branch of Oxford University Press and one day I got a call from him asking me if I would like to be his editor and run the publishing department, and so did I ever. So I went there, and he gave us terrific licence. Um, and if you go back through New Zealand pub uh, publishing over the last many, many, many decades now, um, you'll see what I mean by what a contribution John made. And so yeah. did he... Um was it he who, as your version of the story of the origin of landmarks that John McIndoe suggested it to you? Is that the how? The Timeless Land. The Timeless Land, sorry. Land, yeah. Yeah. Yes, I yeah. know. I'm very bad about names like that. I'm sorry. Yeah. But Barbara worked at John McIndoe's with you. Initially. Yes, and she you, did. And you surely recollect her talking to you and I oh, about yes, it. Yes, yes. <laughs> no. No. Yes. But... <laughs> But there were, there were other people working there before Barbara arrived. <laughs> right. Don't you try and pin <laughs> me to the wall. <laughs> <laughs> Not to the wall, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so about the second book. Oh, sorry, Owen, you are going to say no, something? No, I was just going to say that I, I'll give a small tribute to Brian here that in 1981 I had the fellowship at Canterbury University and I was putting out these stories and thinking of a novel and so on. I sent off to several places. Nobody was interested until I had a reply from John McIndoe and it was Brian. And uh, really that was very important for me. And uh, that was what Brian was referring to when he said that John McIndoe and, and himself as editor and association with others were, were really looking for New Zealand literature, often from new people who weren't being accepted by, by the, mm. the larger publishers. Cause so yeah, because this isn't at the beginning, yeah, well, isn't and, it? And, and, you know, after, after that, a while, quite a long time after that, in a way, but 
Barbara and Co. set up Long Acre Press. Yes. Mm. And what a contribution they've made. So the second book then, that was a great success, and I'm not even going to try to say the name because I know I'll say the wrong one. Mm. <laughs> um, but the first book was a great success and sold many copies. And so then there's this 25-year gap, and you're revisiting the, the same concept. It's mm. still the combination of your paintings, Graham, mm. your stories and poems, Owen, and your writing as well, Brian. And that combination has been revisited. Can you talk about it, how it started, how you decided you were going to do another one? And also, um, how it's been different for you from the first compilation, the process. Has it felt different? I'm not going to claim the credit for the second one, although <laughs> I, I'm certain it was me. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's because go with it'll that. Be two to one. <laughs> it'll be two against one and I'll lose. <laughs> Um, it's going to get very nasty in the green room afterwards. Yeah, that's right. I think really it's, it's more a celebration of the fact that we're still alive. Yes, um, you are. That's good. It, I don't know who, whose idea it was, to be honest, but it just seemed like a good scheme, 25 years on, you know, a sort of jubilee version. And it, it gave an opportunity to, in some small way, look at what changes had happened since 1995. Not only to us, but to, of course, to the region. Right. There, there are some quite significant differences in, in format and content, too. In the first one, uh, Brian was exclusively images... Uh, sorry, uh, Graham was exclusively images, Brian poetry, myself prose. In this one, it's a little bit more liberated. Mm. And both uh, Graham and Brian have prose sections... And I've smuggled in a few poems. So there's, there's a, a bit more mix there. And also, 25 years on, we have different attitudes and hopefully we've grown a little bit in wisdom and we're not only uh, irascible and entrenched and grumpy, but we're also a little bit wiser. So maybe that comes through as well. <laughs> yes, right. right. Brian, has it been a different process for you? This no. Segment? No, it's been the same. Yeah. Good. Well, with that, um, Graham, would you like to take a few minutes to talk, as the others have, and about the work that you've done for the book? Give us a feeling of what you've been up to in this book. What is, what's been preoccupying you? Um, it's a bit like Brian's... Uh, no, really. I, um, I've just carried on feeling fortunate every year that I, I get another year of being a painter. I, I felt it to be a huge privilege from the beginning. I never think I'm going to get another year out of it, but somehow luck keeps rolling my way. Mm. Um, in terms of what happens to a painter as you get older, um, you hope you're getting better. Um, people never tell you if you're not, of course. Um, I find the longer I live in central I, I built a house in Cambrian Valley about 20 years ago and have never left it essentially and I find now that I'm getting more and more work more and more ideas from closer to home my, my world has has diminished and very happily so I, you know it's that old terrible cliche of finding gold in your own backyard um, literally I suppose nearly half of, or maybe more than half of the images in 
and landmarks now will be within 10 or 15 k's of where I live. And it just keeps dishing up wonderful things for me. My, I'm a professional noticer. You know, my, my job is to observe more closely than other people do and then to try to give it a form which represents what I find beautiful and memorable. Owen just early on today put it perfectly, and I wish I had thought of this myself, when he called it the unglamorous things, the unglamorous landscapes of central Otago. That's me in a way. I, I try to find beauty where others don't see it and then to give it a, a permanent form. And that's a great privilege to be able to do that. And I feel every year I get as a, as a painter is an immense privilege. It's never changed for me. I just keep fingers crossed that it'll keep going. Have you changed the, um, the media that you use? Or do you, have you always worked in oils? Or do you always No, work I haven't in... always worked in oils. I, I, I started off as a, as a full-timer in 1974 when I came back from that English experience um, and with egg tempera which is a, a lovely early renaissance medium that I thought I I thought I connected to perfectly it seemed to suit my nature very well indeed and I also had a, a rather more cynical reason for, for concentrating on egg tempera um, which was that early on I thought I had to do something to get some attention if I was just another watercolorist or oil painter, I, I would have less chance of being noticed. So it was a deliberate decision to do something that I loved doing. I love the medium, and I still do. Um, but I, it was a deliberate effort to, to try and remind people that I was there, thinking that would help me survive uh, professionally. But I changed to oils in the early 90s when I wanted to work bigger. A lot of these paintings that are flashing across up above us are oils, and not all of them. That one is. Um, it allows me to work bigger because egg tempera is a very small brush medium, and you have to you have to labour essentially rather dully for so long to do big spaces with a small brush. However, um, after Swapping back to oil for for larger scale, just in the last nine months, I've gone back to egg tempera again. Hmm. You've got to keep yourself stimulated and and excited and challenged. Hmm. And I find now that with having been away from tempera for so long, um, I'm I'm just loving it hugely. So I I really enjoy going to the studio every day. So has the process of putting together this book. Um, had a particular impact on each of you as individual artists because you could each have produced a book about Centro Otago or a region that you loved individually. You could have had, well, you could have done a book about just Graham Sidney or just Brian Turner or just Owen Marshall. From a publisher's point of view, that would have been a highly desirable object in each case. They would have seen that presumably as a very marketable product. But you've chosen to work in collaboration with one another. And has that had any particular impact or affected the way that the book has evolved or your work for that book? Have you been aware of being in company in the book? 
Has it changed things? Well, one of the reasons that I like to be associated is that it represents our friendship. As well as our, our common affection for an area, it's a way of the three of us keeping in touch. It's a way of expressing our friendship and our commonality of, of views, I think. And it's interesting that when the selection process comes, it's not, of course, entirely, or in my case, certainly, it's not entirely up to me. Mm. The publisher also has, has an input. They're looking at the balance. They're looking at how the, the, the text reflects or on, on the images and so on. So some other people are involved also in it. But basically, it's a matter of the compatibility in the three crafts that we practice. Mm -hmm. What about you, Graham? Is it the answer to the chat? Or Brian? Well, I'm, yeah, I'm just glad to see it again. But I've written all sorts of other things in mm. prose and about Central Otago and other places and yes. other activities and so on. And I've been heartened by the inflow of artistic and writerly people. And, uh, it's two down here, yes. Gillian and Bridget. <laughs> Gillian and and so on. And when they turned up and when Gillian turned up and told me she was a writer, I said, oh, yeah, how many times have I heard that before? <laughs> and I've discovered that not only is she good, she's damned good. And she's Very a fourth, good. another forthcoming book coming up. Mm -hmm. and just, just published a book of essays and mm -hmm. so on. Um, Maps of the Heart, Gillian? Yeah. Very beautiful book. So <laughs> <laughs> It's a cracker. Yes, it yeah. is. And with a great love for the region as well, mm. Gillian. Yes, yes. It does. It seems to do that to people. Mm. And Graham, what about you? What did you? Do you find any particular advantages, disadvantages to being in Yeah, a lot of advantages for me. Um, I don't think it's my job to talk about what I do. I, I think it's important that I keep my mouth shut, largely, about what the images might mean or, or what they might contain. Mm-hmm. But I love it when, um, I have loved it from the beginning, really, with, um, with writers who can say things better than I can. And I think for, for my paintings to be alongside um, some of the fabulous observations that Owen dishes up and mm. some of the gorgeous, concise things that Brian manages to put together, I think it helps people look at what I do. Mm. That's that's my interpretation. I think I'm the one that benefits most from from that association. Mm. Yeah, it becomes the sum of its parts, doesn't it? It becomes something bigger that the three of you have put together, and yeah. they echo of one another. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think it's important that painters not talk about their own work, really. Mm. That's you put them out there for others to to do, and not that the, not that any of them talk about any specific paintings, but there is an atmospheric and a and a sort of similarity of theme and response, which I think helps me hugely. Yeah, mm. yes. One thing that we haven't um, touched on is um, the way in which the region has drawn your um, protective um, impulses, that you've actually been involved in campaigns to preserve something of the region. I wonder if you'd care to talk about that dimension, because what, what this book does is show us something of such value. It holds it up to other people and shows the beauty and the value of this region. It, it makes it into something very special. 
um, as is already, but the book emphasises that. And that seems to me to connect with your political work um, that you've put into preserving parts of the region. Um, could you talk a bit about that? Yes, Graham, if you wouldn't mind. Um, mine's a relatively minor role nowadays. We ha I lost a year of work really opposing Meridian's Project Hayes, uh, which was the Southern Hemisphere's largest wind farm projected for the Lamon Wars. I thought it was a, going to be a desecration of, a, of an outstanding natural landscape. And a, a very small bunch of us... Um, Brian and I, and a couple of others in particular, decided we couldn't live, sleep happily at night with that going on. That cost about a year of my life, mm. but I think was worth it. And fortunately, Meridian changed their CEO, and within a week of the new CEO coming in, they abandoned ship. Mm. So those gorgeous hills at the southern end of the Manutoto are still mercifully free of wind turbines. There was going to be 178 of them covering 22 kilometres of skyline, and it was not going to work. It was a very bad scheme, mm. which if anyone, anyone that looked into it knew that. But co that cost me a lot, mm. and from that point on, I haven't been as involved as much in the environmental thing, but Brian has. Mm. Well, we, yeah, we started a group called the Central Otago Environmental Society. I think I was the chair for the first couple of years, was that right, Dylan? Yeah, and, um, and we stuck in there. Um, one of the battles we had was the proposal to dam the Nevis, which is just about the only um, decent river or stream in central Otago that hasn't been dammed in some way or another. Mm. Um, it went to the Environment Court. There were three judges who made a decision on it. It was two to one against the proposal. Mm. So we got quite a kick out of that. Um, oh, there's always stuff going on in this regard. Um, how much water can you be left in or mm. taken out of the Manihurakia, mm. the district and regional councils in Otago um, are not that very good at putting um, restrictions and so on. Mm. And quite a lot of the incoming streams and so on have very little or no water in them where they used to have quite a bit. Mm. Um, there's much more algal growth-like and so on in, the, mm. in many of the rivers. The insect life has gone down and down. There are fewer fish mm. in most places. Now, I don't regard that as progress or development. I just see it as degradation and destruction. Mm. And there are other ways out of all of this. So it, although you, we talk about the timeless land, a uh, land that seems in your images as gloriously big and strong, it's actually quite fragile in lots of ways. It can be destroyed, and you feel passionately about that? Is that yeah, yes. I do. The, the, yes. the changes that we resent most are changes that I think are trying to turn a natural landscape into something that was never intended to be. It's being artificially altered and sustained artificially. You can't turn a semi-arid geographical area like Central Otago, and it's, it's literally the only semi-arid um, region in, in all of New Zealand. What is happening at the moment is that it's being turned into 
into Waikato or Southland. They're pretending that it's Waikato and Southland to sustain the intensity of, of um, agriculture, mainly dairying, of course. Um, the Central Otago doesn't have the natural um, rainfall to sustain the grass growth, so everything has to be done by chemicals or artificial um, taking of water. And that's what I object to. I, I'm, I love farming where it's, mm. where it's um, appropriate, mm. but I just don't think the, the worst of these changes that, that upset us most um, are appropriate. Mm. However, this book is not a protest book. No, it's don't, not a protest book. I don't want to give book. that idea no, at all. No, so. And it's not written for that purpose no, either. No, no, it's not. Owen, do you have any comments about that? Yeah. Well, my support has been sincere, but very much at, at arm's length, and I don't pretend to have the involvement that my fellows have, but I agree uh, with the summation that, that Graham has given, that I think that the natural landscape should be able to develop basically in its own way. Uh, um, dairying, for me, is the thing that really gets my goat when I travel through Central. Um, the wilding pines are bad enough, but I, th I think, as Graham says, it's not an appropriate area mm. to try to do the dairying, yes. and it's only there because it's a money spinner. Yes. Uh, and I think that's, that's been their preoccupation. Mm. And I don't think making money should be the only preoccupation when you decide on land use in areas. Oh. And so think, we have the... Oh, the Plant-based mm. diet, re mm. behaviour. Somebody said to me, put it in quotes, you know, mm. so-and-so, the other day when I said that. Um, I think that's going to come about too. Mm. And uh, there are other ways of making money from... Mm. We're getting towards the end of the session, I suddenly realise. We've got another four minutes. So, in the last four minutes, I mean, perhaps, um, is there something that you still find afresh in this landscape? And what is it that is making you stay in the south? I mean, just to wrap the session up, what is it that keeps you there? You go. Oh, well, for me, it's a getaway place, really. Mm. It's a place I love. It's a place where I can have that arrogance of being alone on the landscape mm. and not being oppressed by a mass of people. And as I said before, it's not Queenstown and Monica that attract me, although I go there. It's, it's, the, it's the quieter areas. Mm. It's, it's, it's the areas in which I can commune with nature, if that's not too pretentious a phrase. Mm. And that's the central that I love, and that's where I go, I think, to mm. draw sustenance from. One of those soul places, yeah. yes. Brian, what, what gives well, you Well, I've got a brother and sister-in-law in Wanaka, um, another over near Queenstown. Um, so it's family. Us, us, us turn as a southern boys, I think. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's still one hell of a lot about the place and the landscape and everything else that I love or mm -hmm. indelible in me. Mm -hmm. So I'd just like to see if we could clean it up a bit. Graham and you. Because in some ways these are rather inconvenient places we live in. I mean, you're always told you ought to go into cities and be close to facilities and all that, but you're not. You're choosing... Well, that's part of the privilege. Um, I find more and more that I'm valuing space and silence. Um, I think... 
spaces in going ahead, you know, for any civilization, is, is space is going to be the, the most valuable of all commodities, and very few have the luxury of it. Mm. Um, I love going into, I love being in central pretty well anywhere because it, it always, the silence of it always thrills me. And it's also, a, mostly, it's a very calm, windless day that you, that you have in Central. Most days, hence the, why the Meridian Wind Farm was such a nonsense, <laughs> most, most days are calm. And I've always been somewhat naively fascinated by the fact that we're on a spinning planet. Why isn't it windy all the time? <laughs> You know, shouldn't there always be a breeze? And I love the calm days. And you'll see that most of what I do is, is about either silence or calm. And is always um, rather empty because the places I love most, and I can't explain what the instinct is that makes me love it so much. It's just something you have and you trust. Um, but I seem to be happiest when I'm on my own. Thank you. Well... I think we've reached the end of our session with these three amazing people. Um, I want to thank Graham Sidney, Brian Turner, Owen Marshall for their care and love for this place, for this region of New Zealand and for making it, bringing it to our attention in these beautiful images and these fantastic words. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes.